Hello and welcome to the Caring for Fano daily podcast. I'm your host Varun Paradwaj and this is day 31 of the New Zealand lockdown. In just a few days we will be returning to business as usual. And to make our way into stage 3 today we venture into the world of sustainable business. So far in this podcast, we have been setting the stage for this kind of discussion to take place by talking about the underlying philosophy and way of thinking that is capable of understanding the juxtaposition of these two mutually opposed concepts on the one hand sustainability and on the other hand business organizations today we look at the work of gail whiteman a management scholar who has devoted her career to the study of sustainable business we begin by looking at an ethnographic study she did with indigenous folk in Canada in the year 2000 and we move on to some of her later works that were more within mainstream business organizations. The construct of social embeddedness has helped explain some of the ways in which individuals and organizations form and sustain alliances. We introduce the construct of ecological embeddedness or the extent to which a manager is rooted in the land. To be ecologically embedded as a manager is to be pers- to personally identify with the land, to adhere to beliefs of ecological respect, reciprocity and caretaking to actively gather ecological information and to be physically located in the ecosystem. We conclude by drawing some implications for sustainability. When Gail Whiteman spent 18 months with Cree Tallyman in James Bay, uh, Northern Quebec, Canada, Originally, she was actually positioned in the village, which has a lot of amenities for tourists and the like. Later, she actually decided to physically move into the bush, which was far away from the village and which did not have any normal amenities, which you would expect on a day-to-day basis and so this really represents one of those rare studies that is unique within management literature. We argue that the Cree's ability to sustain themselves is linked to the Taliban's high degree of ecological embeddedness. 
So the four propositions are managers who have a strong personal identification with local ecosystems have greater commitment to sustainable management practices than managers who are less ecologically embedded. Second proposition is managers who believe in ecological reciprocity, ecological respect and ecological caretaking are more likely to be committed to sustainable management practices than managers who believe less in ecological reciprocity ecological respect and ecological caretaking. Proposition 3. Managers who gather management knowledge through first-hand experience with local ecosystems develop a greater sense of being a place and have a greater commitment to sustainable management practices than managers who do not gather environmental information through experience. Proposition 4. Managers who are physically located outside in their local ecosystems develop a greater sense of being a place and have a greater commitment to sustainable management practices than managers who are physically located inside building. What Gail Whiteman is talking about here is the idea that if I am to be a manager of the land which no matter what I do, whether I'm a farmer or a bank clerk, in a roundabout way, what I end up managing does come from the land. As we have seen through Gaia theory developed by James Lovelock and Lynn Margulis and talked about by Bruno Latour, there is no place called away. And hence, what Whiteman is telling us is that we must identify with the land. We must spend time outdoors and we must believe in reciprocity with the earth. The Arctic is an incredibly important system in the global climate system. So just like the Amazon are the lungs of the world, the Arctic is like our circulation system and feeds in to global climate change everywhere. Science also tells us that the Arctic is in crisis. We know, based on observational data, that we have lost 50% of Arctic ice in about 50 years. So just when the World Economic Forum was starting, the Arctic was very white, and over that time period, it is increasingly blue. Now, why would we care? Well, we care because of the albedo effect. It is no longer white, it is increasingly green, and it is absorbing heat and CO2 emissions, of course, are rising globally. In one day alone, in 2019, August 1st, we lost uh, enough melt in the glacier to, to fill 4.4 million Olympic-sized swimming pools. Tremendous change happening in Greenland. We also see, though, that, that the Arctic is white, it's greening, and then we can see that the permafrost is, 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 is thawing. Now, permafrost, of course, releases methane, which is a concentrated CO2 gas, and if all the permafrost in the Arctic is released, that is like adding in the CO2 emissions of all EU countries. There is a unique field of study called eschatology, ES. C-H-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y, which is very scary because the people um, who have spent time studying eschatology are normally those who believe that the earth 
is heading for disaster. And a few months ago, I actually um, shared some of the views of eschatology. Um, there was, um, I think, Guy McPherson, who was in New Zealand again uh, for the second or third time, um, who was, you know, spreading his uh, word of warning. And I shared all of his research around. But this situation with the Arctic and the permafrost is definitely one of those situations that has the potential for disaster. Now we're all affected by images of polar bears. We can see the polar bear looking for ice, looking for a place to rest. And indeed, as the Arctic changes, the situation is dire for many Arctic species and Arctic-based communities, of course. But Earth system science tells us that actually we are the polar bear too. Why is that? That's because the Arctic is feeding into the global climate system, is protecting through the albedo effect, and that is decreasing rapidly. We also see how the Arctic is, is building extreme weather events globally. From my, my perspective, that the Arctic is a barometer of global risk. What happens in the Arctic does not stay there. And what's at stake is not a geopolitical question alone or the short-term economic benefits from shipping or extraction. What's at stake in the Arctic is actually the future of humanity itself. Instead of taking a doom and gloom view to the situation, Gail Whiteman does point out this fact and this last soundbite is from her very um, her most recent talk given at the Global Economic Forum on the 23rd of Jan this year before um, the COVID-19 lockdowns uh, kicked in. What she does instead of taking an eschatological approach is to think about what we can do. Um, in terms of organizing ourselves, in terms of finding out the things that we don't know that are important to know in order to inform our day-to-day -day living and also, more importantly, our day-to-day -day organizing and our day-to-day -day business. The standard ways of doing and knowing in an organization tend to follow deeply held schematic approaches to sense making and that as groups become attached to certain schemas, they restrict new ways of knowing. Oh sorry, they actively reinforce the validity of traditional approaches even when this cycle may unduly restrict new ways of knowing. Thus, innovation and sense-making can suffer and perhaps suffocate from the very ivory tower which seeks to study and create new knowledge. Semi-fiction attempts to build upon empirical data grounded in methodological rigor. Fiction makes no claims about data or method or, or rigor. It's not real, so we don't have to take it seriously when we don't want to. We end with a challenge. If we admit that language has power over us, not only through what it says, but also through what it is, we will be tolerant of literary experiment just as we are tolerant of scientific experiment. Through fictional and semi-fictional play, 
a richer understanding of organizations and organizing forms may emerge. But we need more than tolerance. We need continued innovation, in fact, and fiction. Scholars also need to write more emotionally in order to adequately convey the richness of using your heart with research endeavors. Matters of the heart can drive our attention. Um, in order to do, do so, we need to produce narratives that are more evocative and visceral in style. And hence, this podcast. What she's saying is, we cannot just rely on the plain and boring facts alone, we need to leverage our emotional um, prowess and our emotional sensitivity to what is going on here. And a lot has been hinted earlier in the podcast that reinforces this argument uh, by Derrida, by Bruno Latour, um, and by others. Basically, what we're saying is we need to take our heart just as seriously as our mind. First, you have to get outside. Reflecting on the ecological location of qualitative research, most methodology books do not explain how nature, or in the author's case, heavy wet snow and swampy muskeg, can be an intrinsic part of a qualitative research design. First-hand situated knowledge of the local ecology is an essential requirement of effective qualitative inquiry and socio-ecological context in terms of access, type of data collected, and interpretation of local management practices. Come to the bush, he said. Come stay with us. I want to move to Freddy's camp. I need the roads, but you grew up here and there was no roads. You don't need a road to get to the land. When we reach into the very depth of our hearts and feel the emotional turmoil environmental destruction around us causes, we do not sit down, but we stand up. And we do not just stand up. More often than not, we go outside for a walk if even just to clear our head. Where we do our research and our finding out about the world makes a difference to what we find. If for the whole duration of our research, of finding out about what is going on, we are locked inside our house, that will significantly impact what we are able to find out. I am no conspiracy theorist, but if anybody wanted to stop us from finding out just what is going on, they could have thought of nothing better than this COVID-19 lockdown. Sustainability involves structural changes over longer periods of time and requires evolutionary change in technology, economy, culture, and organizational forms. The different types of interrelated multi-stakeholder process are needed to create a structural change of a system. Business strategies for transitions towards sustainable systems. Sustainability issues at the level of societal sectors cannot be addressed by single organizations but need to be thought of 
as systemic challenges in which business, government and civil society each play different roles. Businesses need to consider themselves as co-evolving actors within a wider societal system in order to achieve radical innovation leading to increased sustainability. It can be fruitful to strategically invest in long-term innovation and also pursue exploration. Much of the success in exploration depends on individual frontrunners, which are able to develop around them small networks. Here, Gail Whiteman is moving towards a strategic orientation that businesses tend to have, even those who are not necessarily concerned about the environment. What she's saying is that even if you are a mainstream business with no moral outlook towards nature, even then having an outlook towards the environment is strategically the best thing that a business could be doing. And in particular, focusing on long-term innovations that either make the organization more resilient to shocks from the environment or contribute to keeping the ecosystem in such a balance that shocks such as those caused by wildfires and floods and rising sea levels simply do not occur. Persistent sustainability issues are too complex and interconnected to be addressed by single organizations. Firms, government, scientific institutes, NGOs and individuals need to participate in open experimentation across a range of actors. Carl Wick's classic study of sense-making showed that there is much to be learned from a wildland fire, that ecological sense-making and ecological materiality were underappreciated dimensions of this historic tragedy. Comparisons of incidents and actors suggest that ecological embeddedness enables sense-making and that inability to make sense of subtle ecological cues introduces hidden vulnerability. Research on sense-making has had a social and linguistic orientation. But landscapes can impose material constraints on human action. Ecological processes can unfold without any regard of humanity's social constructions. Making sense of ecological conditions affects micro-level outcomes such as personal survival and resilience. How actors notice and bracket ecologically material cues from a stream of experience and develop causal networks connecting various cues with each other and with their previously enacted environments. We have focused on micro-level accounts of ecological sense-making and have not addressed how that process occurring at the individual level can be linked across different localities and scales. Resilience refers to the ability to rebound after a stress or crisis. Research has shown that the ability to make sense of such situations is a key factor influencing the resilience of an organization or team. In this last paper, Gail Whiteman compares the situation of falling into a river with that of 
being trapped in a wildfire. In her previous paper with Cree Talman in 2000, she looked at how managers manage the land over the long term. In this study, she's trying to study those things which involve a very rapidly changing ecology over the short term could be just a matter of hours. The flood situation is much like if there was a tsunami that came to your doorstep and caught you by surprise or if all of a sudden you found out that there is a wildfire and you are surrounded how would you respond so gail whiteman has contributed immensely to our thinking about both the long term and the short term effects of sustainability today We focused on sustainable business by following the works of Gail Whiteman who has published extensively on ecologically sustainable businesses since the year 2000 in leading management journals. We began with an ethnographic study of Cree Talman where Gail Whiteman looked at how managers manage the land through believing in a reciprocity with the earth and walking out onto the land. We then talked about the need to write with emotion and with heart and ended with a focus on short-term radical changes in the ecology such as falling into a river or being caught in a fire. I'm your host Varun Bharadwaj and I will see you tomorrow. This podcast was brought to you by Caring for Fano.